just a little forward on this podcast unfortunately the sound quality is not that great on my voice at the beginning fortunately the great russ ogden who is so down to earth so humble surreal what a pleasure to do a podcast with this man um absolute poetry in podcast style it's really good so enjoy it Staying Alive in Paragliding, a podcast series with your host, Steph Juncker from Cape Town, South Africa, the owner of Parapax Tandem Paragliding and a competition pilot of 23 years. Real podcasts for real pilots. To learn from, to laugh at, and to enjoy the funny and crazy stories that go with it. Man in his garage, he was sitting next to his old timer, a Rover Kamala, and he told me the reason that he is to get away from, to have some quiet from his two girls. How did you describe that dog, Russell? Well, she's a she's a delinquent maniac, but um, very lovable one at that. Boxers are wonderful dogs. They are absolutely uh, great, loving, affectionate, always have a lot of energy. Tell us about yours. Uh, yeah, but well, of, uh, of all my girls, she's by far my favorite and um, uh, just an absolute joy and the best addition to our family that we've had in, uh, we've ever had. Brings, uh, gives us all individually something uh, that is priceless, really. Yeah, no, very much part of the family, and we all love the dog immensely. A bit too much, probably. But that you said it's the lady in your family that you love the most. <laughs> yes. Yeah. My girls know Definitely. that. They accept that. Let me introduce you. In fact, you don't need an introduction. You are a guru in the sport. You are the, if I'm not mistaken, along with Onoha. Um, and a couple of others. I don't quite know the complete structure. I don't think even you guys know the complete structure at Ozone. You are, if I may, head test pilot. We've worked for Ozone since 2004. I uh, took the liberty, of course, since we've never met and we don't know each other. And as you told me, you've never been to Africa before. I'm sitting right here at the portable takeoff site, a place that I've chosen for lockdown, much to my frustration. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. But I'm right here looking at the weather and seeing flyable conditions every day and doing my absolute nut. But Russell Ogden, you are in the south of France. That's where you live, near Gordon. I had uh, Bruce uh, Goldsmith on the line. He's also done a podcast a few days ago. So you guys share a similar um, a takeoff site and you see each other every day. Um, I've yeah, we, to all- we, we fly a lot together and we see them working down there. And uh, Super are also based in this area. So... Uh, where we fly on a daily basis, there's uh, there's often Bruce there and Tia, his son, who works with him now, and uh, a few other test pilots that Bruce uses, along with uh, Pierre Rive, who is the, the um, designer and test pilot for Super. And so we're often flying all together, testing our wings above Gordon. Nice, and I know you guys are not very far there, but I've never actually had the flying experience right in those areas. Um, it's not about me. It's about a very interesting mind that I'm going to try and dig into. Having looked at uh, Hugh's superb interview with yourself on XE Mag, a great one. I'm going to buy 15 of their magazines uh, for the price of 10. I want to give them a very soft <laughs> punch because I think the work that XE Mag and Cross Country in general, along with everybody who's doing podcasts and trying to further the sport, since I had never met you, I sent you an invitation. It was Honorin when I did a podcast with him. 
we said, no problem, speak to Russ. He's such an approachable guy. So I thought, what the hell? And that's how we actually further ourselves. And your answer to me was, why not? Let's do it for humanity. And I love that approach. I think <laughs> what it's all about. Yeah. Well, I was only in response to you because you were saying you wanted to save humanity. And this was your way of saving humanity. So if I can be of any assistance to you to do that, Steph, I'm happy to be, be there. I've got a huge list of things to get through. But um, it is actually here to pick your brain. So let's start with your very first question. Harry asked on Hugh's uh, video chat, risk versus reward, flying unconsciously. Andre Rainsford-Elberts told me cross-country flying and competition flying are the same thing. You disagree. I disagree. Andrew Smith um, tells, asks me the question in a podcast, do we fly consciously or unconsciously? Why do we fly better with a hangover? Talk to me. Um, well, there's no right and wrongs, and Andre, and I would never, never try and dis, uh, go against what Andre says because I rate Andre as one of the best pilots in the world and one of the, the gurus of our sport, and I would always listen to anything he says. I, I am not closed-minded on this, um, but what I find is when flying competitions, I do fly in a different way than when I fly cross country. And the reason being is that when you're when I fly cross country, mostly I, that's done on your own. So you are making all of your own decisions as when to leave a thermal, when to move on, uh, which lines to take in the sky, um, independent of any other information. So you're flight, you're, you're really just in the, the flow of that moment and using all the information that you've you've got in front of you. And what I tend to do when I fly cross country is I just go with the flow. I go with my gut instinct and uh, I don't try, I, obviously I analyze, we're human beings, we have brains we, and we, we, we've got a lot of information to draw from and pull from. So there is an analytical side going on, but mostly it's just going with the flow, taking the paths of least resistance and enjoying it that way. When you're competing, there's uh, 100 and 150 other variables, which are all the other pilots around you. And when we're competing, we should be focusing, or well, I say we should, uh, I focus more about my position in the gaggle, my tactical position within that group of pilots. Um, and I try to remain dominant and try not to make too many cross-country decisions. The more cross-country decisions you're making, uh, the, the more exposed you are. You shouldn't be. You, you should be flowing with the gaggle, going with the gaggle, staying with the gaggle, maintaining your position in the gaggle, trying to be dominant within that gaggle uh, or get dominant within the race at the front of the gaggle and concentrating on that. And then in the last 20, maybe 30 kilometers, that's when you can look for openings and moves and cross-country decisions that are aggressive and tactically correct for the time of the race. When I fly cross-country and when I fly competitions, I, I am flying in a different mindset. I don't know if that's right or wrong, but it, that's how I find myself flying. Yeah, look, uh, obviously you and I agree that uh, we agree to disagree with Andre Rensfeld-Elberts in that, you know, Andre described to me that when he goes free flying, when he's going for a cross-country flight by himself and he's got the same situation as you, he's got two children, a son and a daughter, and he lives not far from uh, 
from the takeoff site. He's a busy businessman. He's got all of that kind of stuff going on. He goes up onto the takeoff site and he takes off and he flies as bloody hard and fast as he can, like really guns it. Uh, come that's on, why, that's think, why we love him. Yeah, absolutely. That's why we love it. That's why we get so off on flying. And yeah, I mean that's the beauty of flying, isn't it? It's it's uh, it really touches deep down in in in. Deep down, it touches. It's uh, yeah. We're we're very fortunate. I've always said that we're 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 so fortunate to be born in this generation, um, and this part of the world, the part of the world that we live in, that we've been given the opportunity in life to be able to do paragliding because all of our forefathers, all of our prehistory, have never had that opportunity, and we're just very fortunate to have been in this this generation. And I think uh, I think the current situation with the lockdown is really showing you know the, the 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 personal freedoms that we've had our entire lives um are, are fragile so we have to enjoy them and we have to we have to carp dm take 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 every moment and really enjoy it so i think i think there's a lot of us sitting around home right now waiting just itching to get back in the air I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I, I had to have a little giggle at your kind of your tone when Hugh asked you, oh, the guys, uh, Jen is being interviewed by me and they are flying there in Korea and you guys are locked down. And your answer was, um, oh, it's very shit for business. We've got so much catch up on work to do. There's a bunch of gliders waiting for me in the office. And I could tell from your tone, you know, uh, and in a nutshell, Russell's job, if I understand it correctly, since 2004, when you work for Mozone, well, give or take, you uh, have been testing gliders. So you spoke of uh, 20 minutes on your own Enzo 3, take off, fly around, test the air, and then take the next glider, top landing, testing gliders one after the next. I picked up a little uh, regret in your voice yesterday when I, I picked up or I sensed that you would love to try more gliders, not only Bruce Goldsmith's gliders, who's right next to you, or Supers gliders, but unfortunately you have your limitations with regards to work and your expectations and look out, Ma and Fred are all waiting for some answer from you to say thumbs up or a medium, or I give this one a six out of uh, Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're flying all the time. We try to put as much time on our gliders as possible. Which means that uh, all of our sizes. Once we once we finish and complete a wing, we need to then put time on on the other sizes to make sure that they're functioning correctly, they're working correctly, they're they're meeting all the all the the goals that we've set. Um, and this takes time. It takes normally about a year to develop a wing, uh, and that can often be a year of working solely on one size to get that size correct. We work normally on the size that that we all fit into comfortably, that we can test comfortably. Um, so we, we work mostly on the mediums, the medium smalls, the medium larges initially, and we get those exactly how we want. And then the other sizes are scaled from that. We don't just scale and then send certification. We need to put hours and time on those wings um, so that we can iron out any problems and find any issues uh, during the development stage before we put, go into production. But, but because Ozone, we have a large range of wings um, and they all come in five, four, five, six sizes sometimes. Uh, and they're all on a constant sort of three year, four year cycle. It means that we have an, a never ending flow of projects, of prototypes of, of wings to fly. So coupled with all the work that we have to do in the office, the behind the scenes, 
uh, along with the flying, it's it's it, we're, we're we're busy, we're busy, but it, it's great fun. It's it's um it's really rewarding work. It's I find it very deeply interesting, and um, it means we can fly a lot as well, which is good. But you have to to do the job to do the job we do, and it's probably like you, Steph. You know, because you're you're tandem flying all the time. You have to absolutely love it, otherwise you wouldn't be able to do it for too long because it, it's uh, it's it's all encompassing, really. Uh, you're actually wrong there. I don't fly all the time. I have a no. team of ten pilots. Um, I work for two months of the year. I've got a really fortunate position. I had actually a clown business. Um, yeah, I could tell that from your pad there. Yeah. I would like to know in your free time, besides your girls, your dog. What else pulls you? I mean, you're trying to tinker with the old car. Uh, yeah, um, I guess as I've got older, my my uh, in my free time in the past, I used to go flying and just be really into to, to flying and, and fly all the time. As I've got older, my um, my, my my interests have shifted, and um, at the moment, my my spare time is taken up doing DIY around the house. We're sort of renovating this old house that we've we've got working on the car, tinkering with bits of wood, making things, fixing things. I enjoy uh, learning new stuff as well, learning new skills. And I think uh, I think I spend a lot of time on, on Google and on YouTube looking at instructional videos of how to do new stuff. Um, but other than that, no, family life, walking the dog, enjoying the, the, the amazing countryside that we live in, up in the mountains, walking in the mountains. And just taking it easy. I very rarely now fly at the weekends just for fun. I don't go cross country around here um, because I think I've, I've done it so much that it just becomes, I always feel a bit guilty if I go of a weekend um, just go flying because I'm very fortunate that I can fly every day during the week. And uh, so I really get to scratch my itch during the week. And uh, when it comes to the weekends, I'm no longer itchy. So come Monday morning, the itch starts again and I, I can fly again. So it's, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I, I don't, I don't fly so much in my free time anymore. It's fantastic. I am not having any children. I've never been married. I'm with a girl for the last 10 years. We live very separate lives. We maybe live, we live together under the same roof, but four months together is fine for me per year. And she respects that I have to go and travel and see the world and do my mad things. So, very, very different, but very interesting. You've been looking at the sky since a little boy. Um, I looked on uh, Ozone's website to have a little bit more into the insights. I don't like to speak to somebody without at least looking a little bit who they are. So you've looked into the sky. You saw your brother start flying. That was too much peer pressure for you, sibling rivalry. And um, at the age of 21 in 1994, that was it. You were completely hooked and the rest was history. Um, I want to know what you studied and I want to know what you did between the years of 1994 and 2004 when you started with Ozone. What did you do professionally there, mate? Well, I started, I studied, I just went to, I just carried on into university after school as uh, it was kind of what was expected of me. I think with hindsight, I wouldn't have done the same again now. And um, if my kids are, are not really that way inclined or that interested, I wouldn't force it upon them. But uh, I was uh, I was kind of brought up to, to expect to go to university. So that's what I did. 
and I had a great time. Uh, I studied business management. It was a kind of a sort of stopgap kind of degree. It wasn't vocational in any way, and it wasn't something I was particularly interested in. Um, but then after that, I started. Uh, uh, once I paid off, I, I just got a job on the construction sites and paid off my debts and managed to be able to afford a second-hand wing, and um, and I started about six months later or, or, or a year after learning to fly, I started working as a trainee instructor with the school that I learnt in, which is uh, Fly Sussex in, in Brighton, in England, south coast of England. And uh, I spent 10 years working as a paragliding instructor um, with a beautiful group of people uh, and had a magnificent time, thoroughly enjoyed it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't give up those 10 years for anything. Um, and we uh, we had a really uh, and it, well, it still is a very successful school in the UK. Has lots of students, um, really good instructors, good vibe, nice flying sites, and um, it was a really good time. The only frustration really was is the UK weather, um, which made some some years were great, and other years were just terrible. You know, I, I, we were in the best part of the UK, in the southeast corner, where it's the sunniest and the least amount of rain and the probably the least amount of wind. Um, so, as Andre says, it, it's Mud Island, though. It still is Mud Island, but it's the least muddy bit of Mud Island. It's not quite as soggy as the rest of it. But how anyone has a school in Wales or up north, I have no idea, because they they must be working on 50 days a year, 100 days a year and the very best, yeah. So it's, um, although good fun, it's, it's quite frustrating to teach paragliding in the UK. But we also had a big period, which is similar to this period now, back in the mid 90s, maybe 2000, when we had foot and mouth disease and they closed off all the countryside. So, they, so anybody who used the countryside at all for any leisure, for walking, cycling, everything, it was completely banned and not allowed to go to the countryside. So the whole flying industry was totally destroyed in the UK. But in a way, it was good because it acted as a catalyst. It, it kind of made us um, look out. We started doing holidays. We started taking groups abroad and so on. So we started a whole... Uh, it did exist before then, but it was very, very small scale. But foot and mouth kind of drived us all to, to look elsewhere. And we started doing holidays abroad, taking groups abroad. To, and uh, that was very successful and great fun. And uh, it kicked off a whole generation of, of British pilots who were then became more willing to travel to get the good flying. I just want to make a quick comment about what we called mad cow disease or, uh, or, or, or um, foot and mouse disease. Uh, by the way, I made a comedy show once called Foot in Mouth at the same time. So it was a play <laughs> on that. <laughs> um, but Corona at the moment, um, mad cow disease are obviously having a hell of a correlation, also giving us that kind of thinking time. Penguins are walking down the road in Cape Town and uh, Tony Pat in Zurich yes, uh, this this morning actually said to me, there's no vapor trails in the sky, the sky's completely clear, air pollution dropping, beautiful. Do you want to make a comment on that? I, I'm not really in a position to say, but I get my gut feeling is that this is the last song song, uh, swan song for for the environment, because I think what's clear is that the most important thing 
on any government's mind is economy. And I think after this break, after the lockdown, I think everything will focus on economy and the recovery of the economy. And I think that will be at the expense of the environment. I think it will be ex at the expense of all the hard work done by the, uh, the groups that are, are, are working towards protecting the environment. I, I, I don't see how those two can, can go forward compatibly now. I, I think this may be the last song, swan song for the environment. I would like to say uh, that, you know, I, I feel a whole lot more optimistic than you. And um, obviously you studied business, so you're not, uh, you're, you know, you're not just talking crap. You're actually coming from somewhere. And I, no, I I'm do talking fear crap. that I, I should. I am talking crap. That's my, uh, that's just my opinion. Not at all. It's your opinion, mate. And I, I and, and, and it's warranted. It is your opinion. And it's, uh, and I, I don't have to say I disagree with you. Um, the economy is going to be the number one focus of uh, governments from now on. They're going to come back strongly and bulldoze the side of the environment. I've for many weeks now been saying we haven't looked at this corona scare in an environmental destruction way. How many masks, oxygen, production, changes, and as much as we like to think that everyone's in lockdown and there's nothing being moved around, you also have to ask yourself in the background how much has been destroying the environment just in the in the name of corona so yeah yeah sure all the plastics for the ppe so how did you end up at ozone um i worked with uh so i was i was teaching paragliding on the south downs i started competing back in the late 90s early noughties and um, I met up with Rob Whittle, who was then designing for Ozone. Uh, we became friends. We flew a lot together. He invited me down there. We started work on, on the um, original competition wing from Ozone. And I took that wing, uh, the first ever comp wing that Ozone made, which was back in 2000. And uh, I took that wing and I competed in the World Championships and some PWCs flew that wing and derivatives of that first prototype for a few years on, on the competition circuit. So that's how I learned how to, I started learning a little bit about trimming the wings, getting a glider feeling nice. I started to get a bit more in tune as to the wings and the behavior. Um, and I learned that from, from Robbie and David Dugol, who were the, who were the guys testing the wings down there at, at the time. So I, I spent a little while going back and forth. Prior to that, I'd been um, I'd done a few SIV courses with Jockey, and uh, I worked, I helped out Jockey as well for a few weeks. So I, I, I got to the understanding of SIV, um, and uh, with the help of Robbie, I started testing down here in Gordon, so just doing simple collapses and, and the like. I had a reasonable background when they were looking for a new test pilot that I had a reasonable level of competence and uh, I was I was 30 years old so I wasn't too young so I uh, yeah they offered me the job and I and I and I and I jumped at it I was just in my life where I was just getting a bit bored a bit um I, I wasn't my I think my performance in teaching was going down because I'd just done it for a little bit too long I have a theory that seven to ten years is the maximum for an instructor. After that, 
they, they, their performance just goes downhill because they've done it too long. They've said the same shit over and over again. I, I certainly noticed it with myself. So I was just at that right time where I wanted the change. And, um, and uh, so we took the change. It was a big change for us, big decision for Catherine and my wife and myself to, to move to France, to drop everything in the UK and move to France. So that was a big, big decision, but uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Had a great time here. I think you've uh, maybe uh, brought something very, very important up there, the seven to 10 years as an instructor. I think that's really one for people to have a think at. Um, I uh, know Wendelin Ortner in uh, Blue Sky in um, Austria very well. Um, I've been a tandem pilot uh, uh, for 17 years every summer, just as a kind of opening my mind, looking at safety, looking at latest models of gliders, really keeping the blinkers wide, wide open. So I've yeah. every year uh, looked at places in Austria where I've kind of uh, fitted in and had fun. And Wendelin uh, uh, is a guy who's like won the Dolomiten man uh, 30 times and he's a super athlete and he's a, he's kind of like a machine. He can You can just press reset at the beginning of the year and restart. The whole question, of course, evolves. Is that is that fresh? Is that good? Is the gusto still there? Yeah, I think that, I mean, I've seen it in, uh, and, and for sure there are exceptions because there's some great instructors out there doing a fantastic job that have been doing it for, 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 for a lot longer than that. But I'd say the average Joe, someone like myself, there's a 10-year shelf life for an instructor, for them to be doing it at the peak of their abilities and at the best of their abilities. The local instructors around here have been doing it their whole entire adult life and they're just so tainted and done with it that um, I'm, I'm amazed that they keep going, but uh, they do at the expense of the enjoyment of their, uh, their students, I should imagine. You know, you have to ask yourself about a good service. Um, I'm a strong proponent uh, to people in this day and age, uh, not only having one career, for example, changing what they do in their lives more than once or twice in their lives. You know, if somebody is 20 years old today and manages to hold a job for 40 years, uh, they are really exceptional as opposed to the norm. Meanwhile, our parents, you know, we're a similar age. It was completely accepted that they would get into their job and... Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, that 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 has definitely changed over the years, and I think, I think that's partly because we're more aware of the opportunities that life can offer us now than than our parents' generation, and uh, we 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 information's great, um, but it does raise our expectations, and uh, we're always striving to to improve and meet those expectations, which is sometimes they're unattainable. I think. You have a 14-year-old daughter. I'm just writing down the word millennials. They don't know what work is. They're absolutely not interested in work. They just want to play on the social media. Look at their screens, which I, I'm um, also going to do a podcast on how addicted we are on our phones. Um, you know, it's an absolute bizarre concept that all of a sudden we've got this little thing in our hands and we cannot be away from it. In the five weeks of this lockdown, I've done a, a three-day silent retreat where my phone stayed off. It, I didn't look at it. Um, I didn't communicate with any human being, and I tried that as an experiment. Bizarre, you know, bizarre what's going on in your head. Like, change of subject, what does your wife do for a living? Uh, my wife is um, a great mother, so she spent the last time being a, a pretty much a full-time mum. But she, uh, before that, she was a teacher, teaching English, working in Monaco, teaching the, the rich kids in Monaco. 
and uh, now she does personal individual English lessons and with with small groups as children as well there's a lot of demand here in France for English to be introduced at an early age and it's not done in the schooling system so it's often done by private tuition and uh, Catherine does uh, quite a few hours a week doing that uh, you know, being married to you, I'm sure she needs much more stimulation, which is absolutely fantastic and great <laughs> to you guys. Uh, you know, I can read my uh, clients and I have to say that uh, I, um, I like to look at you and say, you know, you need constant stimulation. Uh, you're not a guy who can uh, just walk the dog from morning to night and just be lost in your head. No, you need much, much more to be going on in your brain, if I'm not mistaken, Russell. I'm actually, I actually, you know, I, I, I yeah, no, you're, you are quite right. I do need to, I am constantly thinking. I do enjoy thinking and um, learning new stuff, but I really enjoy it. One of my favorite moments is walking the dog because it's just a, it's just an absolute release. And because you do it on a daily basis, you, you really see the seasons change. You see, uh, it's a it's a lovely moment for me whether I go with my girls or on my own. Um, uh, walking the dog is very cathartic, very, really enjoyable moment for me, where where you can just switch off everything. I quite enjoy that. So I'll tell you something you may or may not know about me. I am a hypnotist. I do a stage show and I've done a lot of hypnotherapy with people, and um, I have a lot of um, uh, how would you say a benefit from that uh, in my life and. I'm very looking at trance and meditation. And of course it goes without saying and we, that we go into a trance and we do meditate when we are paragliding. That's how we're in. A, a lot of people yeah. ask them, do you meditate? And I'll ask you the same question, do you meditate? You are meditating when you're walking the dog. You are meditating yeah. when you are paragliding. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I think, um, I, think I, don't, I don't meditate. And, but I'm very open to it. I've read a lot about it. I, 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 I listen to a lot of Sam Harris. I don't know if you know him. He's a, he's a, he's a uh, psychologist. He's into meditation. And, but I've never done it. Um, but I'm very open to it. But when we fly, I, we definitely get into that flow state. It's, very, uh, it's a very beautiful state of mind. Uh, and it ends the instant your feet touch the ground. It's like... Zoof. And you're back in reality and you're back into the real world as the glider sort of hits the ground after that, you know, the wind stops, the glider touches the ground and your brain oh, opens up again back to reality. So I think all of us who fly, we, we love the idea of the, the idea of escapism and, um, you know, that sort of magic carpet ride in, into the distance is, is exactly what flying, uh, is what, exactly what paragliding offers. I think it's why many of us are drawn towards this sort of game, the beautiful game, yeah. You've said it exactly right there. And when you chatted to me for a few minutes for us to get to know each other, because um, we've never chatted before, you were describing, I was asking you, have you got any funny moments or any special moments? Uh, and you were describing it's a lot of little moments it's the moments of flying with a bird or suddenly a raptor yeah. comes it's the moment yeah. of sitting uh, quietly and arriving um, yeah i yeah i mean when you look at when 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 you drive past a flying site i mean i still do it now i drive past a flying site and i watch people flying and my first thought is god it looks a bit boring but when you're actually doing it 
um, you're, you're, like I say, you're in this flow state, and you're you're feeling the. It's a very. It's a, it's a, for me. It's a it's a good way of touching with nature, because you're really feeling the invisible energy of the earth, the thermals, and the sink, and the, uh, and the way the wind interacts with the terrain, and you're you're, you're feeling it. You're feeling it through the lines, through the sail, and uh, the, the, the texture of the air changes depending on where you are. It changes on a daily basis. I fly on the same flight every, at the same site every day, and, and every day the texture of the air is different. And uh, so that's a, that's a beautiful thing for me to be able to feel that and to be able to um, quantify the movement of air, which I think, well, we're probably the first generation to have ever been able to do that. Because you can't really do it in an aeroplane. You can only really do it on a hang glider and a paraglider. You can't really, you, you can in a sailplane, but not to the same extent. Um, I think it's just going a bit too fast. I think the speed that we're flying just gives us a, a, a much more intimate feel of the air mass. And that's that in its own is beautiful. But, but yeah, my flying, career and my or my flying life has been peppered with with hundreds if not thousands of very magical moments that otherwise are you know to other people may not may be insignificant but just you know being eyeballed by a vulture as it as it cruises past you or or what i particularly love is just diving into the middle of a bunch of swifts and they're just zipping and zinging all around you pulling the most amazing breakneck maneuvers and all of those little moments which which add up over the years to, to just to, to, to give a, a I don't know a, a, a layer of contentedness you know if I die tomorrow I'll die a happy man because I've I've lived you know and I've I've, I've experienced these these special moments and flying often gives us that you know flying gives us a lot it takes a lot and it gives a lot you know we we as you know, you've been in this sport a long time. We've lost friends. You know, we've seen personal tragedies um, happen regularly, and they will continue to happen regularly. So it's you know it's serious shit. This flying, it gives a lot, but it does take a lot. We just have to. Uh, you have. That's why you should only really fly if you absolutely have to fly and you love it. Otherwise, it's just too dangerous to to do as a as a kind of pastime, like you'd play golf or play tennis. Um, flying is is part of life and it has to become your life to do it successfully and to do it well and to do it safely. We, we owe that to all those around us, to our loved ones, because if you kill yourself flying, it doesn't matter, but it, 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 uh, to, to those that you leave behind, it leaves a trail of destruction, which is, uh, which is uh, very profound. We have to do it seriously, and we have to do it to the best of our abilities. Wow, you've said it so nice, and it's such a pleasure to listen to you. It's actually beautiful. It's like a poem you're speaking out there. Uh, um, and I'm not flirting with you, Russell. Stop it, all right? I do want to uh, tell you that your bosses might not be happy because you were talking about flow in paragliding. Don't promote other companies, my brother. <laughs> Uh, moving on again uh, to this meditation and this headspace stuff, I just want to relate a little story about this. Um, so I never formally meditated, although I've been doing hypnosis for 25 years. Um, so my girlfriend, uh, who's a doctor, finally said, right, it's time to do headspace, which is an app. And I really recommend it for people. I'll give it a little soft punt. It's an Englishman who uh, became all Zen and decided to uh, give this a go. And you get a 10 or 14 day trial um, on an app. 
Uh, it's a little red dot uh, called Headspace. 10 minutes at a time to meditate. You know, we can go into trance extremely quickly. We can do it within a few seconds. You've seen hypnotists like hypnotizing people in just a second or whatever. Our brains are amazing. The difference between conscious and unconscious, of course, we fly unconsciously. We, we can switch between the conscious and the unconscious mind and being uh, in the conscious or in the unconscious really quickly. So I gave myself an experiment in Iran two years ago. Uh, I went to fly in their nationals and I decided I'm going to meditate every day just before the takeoff because uh, it came as a result of me being quite nervous about the conditions in Iran. I was like, geez, uh, you know, wow, I'm strong, I'm, isn't it? Yeah. Actually, it was not. It, yeah. the, they were very, very nice, gentle, easy thermals all the way up to 6,000 meters. Although that's not what you and I would expect. You've, you've got the preconceived idea like Iran, oh, it's going to be rougher than a bear's ass, but I didn't know that. So I said, oh, you're going to meditate to be cool beforehand. And my performance was really, really good beforehand. So for anybody out there, a tip I might give, if you're a nervous pilot of any sort, if you are that side of confidence, because obviously there's that risk reward, there's that, um, are we on the side of um, too gung-ho or are we too nervous? Either of those people, in my opinion, should not be paraglide. And you've just mentioned people who don't paraglide enough so one big problem I have with the DHV is they did a census and, um, you know, 85% of their members, which are around 40,000 people, paraglide for 10 flights or less per year. And they'll arrive in a holiday place, rent a glider and go out. That's suicide, in my opinion. They, those people yeah. should really not be flying. Please comment yeah. on that. Well, going back to what you say about meditation and hypnosis, I think from what I've read um, and what I understand, I think there's... Ev- People's brains are different. Some people are quite very receptive. I mean, you must know this from hypnotos- uh, hypnotist that some people are very receptive, whereas others, you, they're, they're like a lump of stone that you can't get through. Is that that's as, as far as I understand it? I, um, I, I I've never been hypnotized. I have no idea about myself whether I would be receptive or not. My gut feeling is that I probably wouldn't be, but that's uh, I don't know. I've never I've never been in that in that situation but um no yeah yeah let me make a comment on that actually um uh, uh, people are often surprised you know um it's uh yeah. if i stand on the stage and do a hypnosis show i um uh, a lot of people will say oh can you see who can and who cannot be hypnotized and you cannot you mm-hmm. cannot see you can obviously um, form stereotypes on people and say okay he looks quite in touch with himself um it's a very, very abstract concept and it's a very, very strange one to be able to pick up who is a good subject for hypnosis and who is not. Um, hypnosis in itself is nothing different to what we experience every single day. So, um, you know, we go in and out of trance uh, regularly. You'll drive along the car and uh, uh, and a classic uh, cliche of you'll miss the off-ramp and, oh, I was in a daydream. Yeah. So as we are daydreaming, as we find ourselves like you'll be sitting in the office uh, thinking about... Um, how was that rush five or that rush six, which I'm developing? Is that a nice thing? Uh, and the next thing, your train of thought is going off. That is hypnosis. So, okay. Uh, I, I think I've been quite receptive. Then. Yeah, I have to try it one day. But yeah, going back to, to what you were saying about the DHV, about uh, safety and the like, I think your headspace is, is, is really important. I think that's where experience is really helpful. I... I when you when you learn to fly, when you first start start out flying, there is a lot of natural fear involved. You know, you're in a totally 
unfamiliar environment, you're flying on an unfamiliar machine, and you have to hardwire into your brain and your muscle memory the feel of the wing, uh, and you have to cope with this enormous influx of information, and just to keep yourself safe and alive and, and land safely at the end of the day. And when you're learning, that should be your absolute focus. Number one importance is to have fun and be safe and land safely at the end of the day. And that, that period takes quite a long time. It depends on your own natural ability. It depends on the environment that you're flying in, the, the people that you've got around you um, and uh, the opportunity that you have to fly. Um, but that, so that period is, is different for, for, for many, for everybody. Um, some people due to this, due to their personal circumstances will possibly never get out of that kind of initial learning phase, uh, because their, 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 their flying is fractured. It's not organized together. There's not enough of it. The conditions you fly in aren't good enough, whatever. But as you fly more and more and you build more and more experience, then those the fear kind of can go away slightly but i've found that it's taken a huge amount a massive amount in fact it's taken almost a lifetime dedication of flying for the fear to kind of for the irrational fear to kind of be ironed out but what that means now for me personally is that when i get scared in the air there's a very good reason for it before I had a lot of fear when I was first started flying many years ago, but it, most of it was unfounded. Whereas now when I'm scared, I, there's a good reason that I'm scared. So when I become scared now, I really switch on. I identify exactly why it is I'm scared. And normally I will um, try and do something to alleviate that situation, whether it be go and land or take a different option or get the hell out of there or, or something, whatever. Fear management, fear control is part of flying it's something that we have to be able to overcome we have to be able to be good at dealing with fear because when the shit hits the fan we're in a fearful situation we're in a serious situation and we have to deal with it you can't close your eyes and it goes away you have to deal with it there and then sort the problem out and solve that issue and so we have to be able to remain um switched on and ready to do that at all times and if we're in a situation where you're overloaded and uh, it gets too much that's when accidents a gem of information there you know you're completely right and you need to be able to separate irrational fear and rational fear and controlled fear and fortunately we are not all androids russell we are all different uh, as human beings you know yeah. you and i let's say there's something completely new a one wheel uh, uh, the, the one wheel with the electric thing that you put your feet on and you lean forward and you ride. you and i might have different balances but it might be fun for us to be given such a, a new brand new toy or a new kind of thing and say, okay, you two, let's compare each other. And then we give it to a, a chess champion um, uh, or we give it to a, a guy who's really good at uh, walking on the trapeze or, or balancing on the slack line. And it might be completely different. So every single one of us is different. Every single one yeah. of us enjoys a different kind of flight. You know, yeah. um, look at Ren, uh, Andre Renz for the Albert seat takes off and burns it. Um, people look at you as a flying god. As you explained in your uh, chat with Hugh, you know, you have to have the soft focus around. You don't need to be overanalyzing the weather. You are also, like me, not a big fan of your instrument. So, yeah. you know, it's different for different people. And I think what's important is to be conscious of that kind of thing. 
and for pilots oh, to have a pilot's yeah, you have to know you have to know yourself huh? for sure yeah please carry on uh, yeah you have to you have to know yourself as a pilot and um just accept that um if you're out of practice if you haven't flown for a while that uh i mean that's what's worrying me about this covid you know we're, we're we've all been locked up we're all itching to get out there and just got to make sure that there's we, we all have to be and I speak to, to everybody that we all have to be very disciplined when we go back flying. If you haven't flown for a while, get the glider out, do some ground handling, do some practice, do some flights early in the morning. Just get used to flying again. Get used to the sensation. Throw the glider around a bit, move it around, make some landings, top landings. You don't really want to be taking off for your first flight after six months of not flying and taking off into screaming June, midsummer, you know, equinox type thermals uh, we have to be disciplined and we have to be we have to keep it safe um, and take it easy we uh, one of the best advice that was given to me when I started as a test flyer pilot with ozone and Robbie said to me he said you can't be superman every day and it was really good advice because it takes the pressure off um, you know because we 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 test and we we, we work above the rocks here and the trees in Gordon. We, we do all of our testing above ground. Often we don't have a huge amount of height. So it's quite a stressful, involved occupation. And the more you do it, the easier it becomes and the less stressful it becomes. But there's some days that you're just not feeling it and you, you don't want to, to add to the risk. And those days... You go and land, and you, uh, you you don't have to do it, you know. And, and for with I, I work with Ono now, as you know, and and um, I said to him exactly the same thing, you know. Like some days you don't have to do it, and if you're not feeling it on that day, don't do it because it's the days that you're not quite feeling it, but you still push yourself, that um, incidents and accidents can happen. And I think that's the same for all of us, you know. So we have to look at our gut feelings. We have to try and differentiate between irrational fear and your gut feelings. I mean, often those days where I'm not feeling it, it's irrational fears. It, it's, it, there's no logical reason, but I listen to myself. I listen to that inner side of me. I know when I'm feeling strong. I know when I'm feeling not so strong. And there's probably other unsubconscious reasonings for it. Normally for me, it's because of turbulent air. And um, if the air is super turbulent, I can't really perform full speed side collapses because the air is too turbulent. I can't get a smooth bit of air to do a, side, uh, a full speed side collapse. So the results of doing full speed side collapses in turbulent air are pointless anyway from a glider development point of view. But these are often little triggers that will, will, will knock me off. And I always go back to the risk reward. And it's the same in testing, it's the same in designing. You know, we often fly in stronger conditions than many people fly in because that's good. We need to put the time on the wings. We want strong conditions. We want it turbulent. We want the air to try and break the wing if we can to see the structural strength of the, the cord or the span or whatever. So we do need to fly in those strong conditions. If it's really strong conditions and you've got the opportunity to climb out to cloud base, that's that's fine. You know, that's a risk reward. It is is the risk of flying in the really turbulent conditions on the ridge worth it if you're going to climb out? Often I'll say yes. That that's a risk reward I'm willing to take. But if it's a windy, turbulent day and there's no chance of climbing out, is that risk worth it? After 25 years of flying, for me, no. I don't fly on windy strong days that don't offer any reward other than getting your feet off the ground.
I think in a sentence, I would say, be honest with yourself as a pilot. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and there's no shame. Uh, there's Robbie, no shame. There's no shame in just saying, do you know what? No. Yeah, there's no medals for those who have hurt themselves. Um, yeah. You actually, at the end of the day, have to be straight up with yourself. You have to be honest to yourself. And you have to say, as uh, as horny as I am to fly, as uh, lockdown is finished, I want to get out there. I really want to go and fly. I have, we, at the end of the day, and I said it in the very, very first podcast I ever did, is uh, you will be on the takeoff site and you are not in the air until that glider is up above your head and you have committed to launch. So, guy, pack up the glider. Like, take it, bunch it, put it away. It doesn't matter if you've paid money to rent it. It doesn't matter if this is the only day on your holiday you're going to get to fly. Don't do it. Like, it's not worth it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you have to imagine as well, you know, people like Andre who, who come out and send it every time they go flying. The only reason that they're still able to do that is because they've made those decisions in the past. And they know themselves and they know their own limits. I think Andre, I think Andre's gone through without having any serious accidents from, from most of his career, as far as I know. Pilots, all the old dogs, you know, they've, they've managed to, to, to be able to get through that. Because we have to expose ourselves to risk in order to learn. That's the, that's, the, that's the problem in flying, you know. We have to expose ourselves to risk in order to gain the experience, in order to understand glider behavior you know you have to fly in turbulent air to be able to learn the skills of keeping the wing open in turbulent air so exposure to risk is something that you can't avoid in order to progress in our sport but uh that's why we have to try and manage our, our exposure to that risk and, and and mitigate the chances of of bad things happening which is why you know practice training is so fundamental and it's why I, I've been a strong proponent of SIV training for many, many years. It's it's not the be all and end all. It won't make you safe, but it will make you slightly safer. You've said it there and uh, the naughty boy Robbie Whittle also taught me a couple of uh, tricks in the end of the 90s when I first met him. And, uh, you know, he, he was an absolute uh, complete guru a complete idol for me i mean i uh, i haven't spoken to him in years and years but uh i i tell you uh he, oh wow i i need to speak to him again soon i mean i've got to look up sure i gotta pick you that should do brain. you should do because he's he's bloody awesome now and he's he's um designs kites he designs the ozone kites he's pretty much stopped flying he does fly every now and then he's got a small xeno um and he does go out flying every now and then but what he's really into now is his bikes, and he's doing a lot of uh, TT racing. Does the Isle of Man TT, and he's riding his 600, and uh, he's also dappled with the thousands as well. But he's got himself to a really good level. I mean, he was in the senior proper TT race last year. He's just full on, and you've got to get him on. He's, he's awesome. Well, you're going to tell him that he does a podcast with me and uh, he will remember me because uh, way back when in Vertigo, we had a couple of really mean parties together and yeah. he will remember him from Africa. So <laughs> <laughs> you remember Greg, Greg Brown showing you the lion walk way back when? Yeah. I still, I still, that's, that's disturbed me for my whole life. I still have nightmares over that. Yeah. Yeah, but happy days, really good days. I really enjoyed that that period. It's when I met Greg and Andre and all the all those guys. Yeah, Andrew and everyone. Yeah, it was good. The party turns for the worse, and there's a bit of a you know, there's a fist fight, and there's a there's this and that, and and the girls arrive, and it gets even more out of hand. Come on, that's paragliding. 
I think things have changed now. There's less fist fighting and less girls. That's a big problem. Eh? I don't mean about the fist fighting. I'm not one for <laughs> Obviously, Robbie Whittle won the, won the world championship in hang gliding many, many times. And you and I think we're big men and we're like really good at racing guys to go. Actually, we're pussies. Because if you think you're ever going fast, you just Google uh, Guy Martin and or let's say Robbie Whittle and look at the chase camera on him on the Isle of Man TT. Guy Martin and Johnny Dunlop um, are is one of the 17 minutes around the Isle of Man, which if you ever think you're riding a motorcycle fast, and I ride a motorcycle like really a deranged man around Cape Town. We have a lot of traffic. Uh, Cape Town's become one big parking lot. There's traffic there every single day. And I don't want to drive a car. So I ride a variety of different motorcycles around just for fun. And one of the best fun you can have on the ground is to ride a motorcycle on the racetrack it comes down to the individual doesn't it i mean of all my friends of all my friends if there's one of them that i would be the most comfortable riding in a tt uh, would be robbie you know because he's so competent he's so competent and what's very good about robbie uh, he took for example last year in the tt he had his 600 bike and he had his thousand bike and they, they do a few days of training, of practice, uh, before the actual senior race starts. He did all that in his 600. He qualified for the 600 race. He did it on his 1,000. I believe he qualified for the 1,000 race. But at the end of the day, he said, do you know what? I'm not going to do the 1,000. It's a little bit too much for me. I'm just going to stick and concentrate on the 600. You know. So although he's a crazy loon, he also has very good control of his own mind, of his own with his own well-being and um, he's he's quite sensible with it as well so from from all the people i know he's he's all my friends he, he, he's the, he's the one that i would be you know, he's the only one i'm comfortable with actually doing that because it is so bloody dangerous yeah i agree with you i i would um i i, I the only sport that i really follow is is gp racing and i i i just love the level of what those guys do and and uh, i i'd love to be able to do that Oh, I tell you, there's very, very few things that is so amazing as opening up a motorcycle and uh, just uh, letting it go. You know, it's just a lot of wild horses can't hold you back from being. I know. Yeah, I had, a, I had a 600 sport bike for 10 years, so I do know that. And um, but since I moved to France and we've got the best roads around here, we just got really good roads for bikes. But I haven't owned a bike in 15 years now. And um there was a stage in my life where everything I enjoyed involved a crash helmet and I had to have a word with myself. So I, I, um, the motorbike was the one thing that I put to the side just to reduce the chances of, of risk in my life. Know your limits. And I think a message I'd like to send out to the world or to the world of paragliding would be know your limits, guys. You know, mm. ask yourself, uh, can I make transition over this nasty place and everything's going to be okay? Don't do it, guys. Just don't do it. There are no prizes for the guy who has crashed. Uh, you know, and I was having the discussion with somebody the other day about uh, how safe is paragliding. And he's saying, oh, I'm still concerned about how many accidents there are. If you ask me, Russell, and I'd like your comments on this, I think paraglidings become extremely safe. Um, I disagree uh, on two things. I think, uh, I think every manufacturer is doing their genuine best to make the best wings that are safe and better than before. I think that's that's not just ozone, that's every single manufacturer that I know. So there's a lot of genuine desire to make our sport safer. I think the wings for the given performance are obviously safer than they were 
back when we started flying. When we started flying in the 90s, they didn't go very fast. And when you tried to make them go a bit faster, they became insanely unstable. What we have now is a level of speed and stability that we could only dream of 20 years ago. Um, so the wings have become safer, but the sport hasn't become any safer because there's people hanging underneath them and human beings are fallible. And that extra speed and stability allows us to fly in stronger and stronger conditions. Pilots are exposing themselves to more danger. So yes, paragliding is safer now, but human beings haven't made it safer. We've exposed ourselves to more danger by flying in stronger conditions. I see beginner pilots now, I see, and when I say beginner pilots, I'm talking pilots with 50 hours, 100 hours experience, flying in the strongest part of the days, flying in the strongest conditions, because they see the pilots have been flying their whole adult lives. They see the pilots that dedicate themselves professionally to this sport flying in those conditions, and it all looks safe and fine and easy to them, so they take off into these conditions. And uh, the big collapse low down is, is, is something that we're all susceptible to, and it still continues to, um, to cause injuries and deaths. And cascading events are, are also possible if you're flying in conditions that are too strong for you, or if you're flying a glider that's a little bit too advanced for you, or a bit too aggressive for you. Although I totally agree that the paragliding has become safe. And I think if you get to our age, if you get to a, a period where you've been flying for 10 years, 15 years, and you're very self-disciplined about the conditions you fly in, then yeah, you can make this sport totally, totally safe. As safe as you can make any kind of extreme sport. It's a relatively less extreme sport. But like I said earlier, during that learning phase, during that period where you're discovering and learning paragliding, which I would say takes 500 hours, really, to learn how to fly a paraglider, to say that you are competent and past the intermediate stage of paragliding is, is probably between three to 500 hours, I'd say. But those first three to 500 hours, you are exposing yourself to risk. You have to expose yourself to, to risk in order to learn what is necessary to keep yourself alive in the long run. But so it is during that period that it is dangerous. But if you are self-disciplined, if you choose to fly in the right conditions, you can make it safe. You can progress in a safe way. But as humans that want to aspire to better at all times, it's quite hard and requires a lot of discipline. You, I'm sure you see it where you are in Porterville. You know, you, you've got a site there which is world-class, world-renowned. It can give you lots of amazing flying, but also there's times and there's periods where it's not safe for the inexperienced to fly. There's a certain wind direction where it gets very turbulent on takeoff and all those little things that you know about. But someone who's been flying for, for 50 hours and have arrived there on holiday, they may, may not know that, you know. So there's so much we learn from doing our sport and from the experience of, of doing it for many years that that you just can't learn in 10 hours or 20 hours. Um, and I think that's, that's our sport dangerous. It's not, not the wings that we fly. What, when people take off and see Andre just hammering it down the ridge and doing a 100, 200K flight, if pilots aspire to that too early in their flying career, that's when they're going to get burned because they, they don't have in their head what Andre does, in his head and in his skills and everything. That's what keeps our sport dangerous. I think it's the human element rather than the wings per se. So 
it's not actually the pilot who is um, at 30 flights, 40 flights, or 50 flights that's going to crash. As you said, it's the guys who put their egos, and that's a big one in this, put their egos behind them, forget about their discipline, which is another word that's really pertinent here, and they have 50 to 100 hours. They are on the bounce list. They are on the guys that have to yeah. be very, very cautious. So you become a big man when you know how to thermal and you know how to fly and you show up at Gordon because, you know, wow, there's some big names here. And you kind of have to feel that you have to show. Don't do it, guys. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. And it's uh, something that doesn't go away. It's something that we all have to deal with on a daily basis, you know. You speaking of portable, I do want to add a little comment on this bloody beautiful and, in my opinion, one of our premier sites in South Africa, one of our premier known sites. We have hundreds of sites. Um, oh, and, uh, I'm, sure you've, I'm, sure, oh. I'm sure there's a plethora of amazing flying sites down your way. Yeah, I've never been to Africa. I'd love to come to Africa. It's, it's on the bucket list. It's, you know, it's the seat of everything. I've been very fortunate to be well-traveled in my flying career, um, but Africa... Porterville is one of the places uh, that I've never had the, the, the opportunity to, to get to, but I will hopefully get there one day. It's definitely on the bucket list, and I'd like to uh, join you for a beer on your terrace and then wander over there and have a flight. Mate, I'm waiting for you, and you're absolutely my guest when we come here, even if we're strangers, if we were strangers an hour ago. Uh, just on Portable again, uh, you know, we had a Swedish pilot who died here on uh, in, a, in a competition. In a, yeah, Lars. Uh, yeah. Just, Lars, just was a, Lars was a friend yeah. of mine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that. Yeah. Shocking. Again, in the heat of the moment, and uh, I don't want to have any offense to anybody, and I say this in really just a learning way. He got to goal. He had crossed through the end of speed section. He was on his uh, glide to goal. He didn't need to be banging the bar, full bar, and just above the ground to whirly and that was the end of him um we have to be able to a curtailing of our excitement or uh, to be able to curb our uh, enthusiasm if i may yeah um, i think it was as far as i understood he needed to be on bar to cross the line though uh, i'm not sure if he was going to make it he, i think it was speed to fly he had to be accelerated to cross the line but either way um that's that's the, that's one of the dangers of competition it kind of forces you to, to reach a goal. And especially when, you know, in, in Lars' incident, um, the, the, what's worrying about that incident, and I think what we can all take home from, or certainly I take home from that, um, because I knew Lars, and he's a very competent pilot, very good, lovely guy, good, good competitor as well. And he just won the race. He knew he'd run the race, but he had to finish. He had to cross that goal line. In order to do so, as far as I understand, in order to do so, he had to remain on speed bar to get there because he was going in to win. Um, I've been in that situation several times, not, not necessarily winning a race, but trying to cross a line to, to, to get into a goal and having to push the bar in order to do so. Um, Peter Brinkby famously did it many years ago and, and managed, and fortunately just broke his legs and his back and, and managed to live and survive and fly another day. So we, the, the rules were changed about crossing the goal line um, to try and make it a little bit safer. But ultimately, I've been in exactly that same situation as Lars um, on several occasions. Probably had I been in that same situation as Lars on that particular day at that altitude, I may well have, may well have been doing exactly the same thing. And that's a worrying kind of thought 
But it's also an important thought and it's a lesson to all of us that the most important thing ultimately is landing safely and walking away. That, that, that goes without saying. But there are times and competition kind of does that to you. It pushes you on and on and a bit further beyond what you would normally do. But that was an unfortunate loss from our sport and, uh, and um, yeah, a real tragedy. But the, the, the worrying thing for me is that I'd possibly probably be doing exactly the same thing in the same place. Comments on competition. Uh, um, I saw somebody had written a little comment on, on the YouTube channel of um, XE Mag saying, wow, it gives me it gives me a lust to go and uh, compete. I definitely, definitely encourage any pilots who are out there who are just flying around cross country doing a little bit more than soaring, uh, thermaling. A competition doesn't mean that you're arriving in a situation where you are uh, going to be pooping yourself or you have to go a, a huge step up. No, do everything within your limits. Bruce Goldsmith was telling me about MRT style. There are lots of kind of uh, calm competitions. I'm not a huge fan of the PWC format. I, I find it unnecessarily aggressive. I've heard lots of competition pilots saying that there's way too much gaggle flying. Yeah, that's. The, I mean, I call competition paragliding the beautiful game. They're, they're, I, from all the sports I've ever done, there's nothing better than more pleasurable than uh, the race in a paraglider. Um, I've had many great flight with uh, Andre and Russell. Love flying with those guys. It's always a pleasure. Had a, we had an excellent task in the super final last year in Baixoguando when we went over the Pampas, which are these amazing rock, granite rock formations that stick out of the jungle and uh, I did that with Andre and Ono was there as well it was the three of us we got the jump on everyone I had a great ding dong at the end the most satisfying bit was that we dropped Andre at the end and he uh, we beat him in by a minute a couple of minutes I think a minute or so so from all levels of competition now there's lots of different competitions that you can do there's the the ozone shabra opens uh, we're going to do another one. In, we're doing one in Macedonia. There's one hope in the States, or that, it's not going to happen now, I don't think, um, this summer. But there's also the, the, the Gin Wide Open. There's Bruce's competition, his weightless ones. Um, all of these are, are aimed at uh, new pilots or new to competition pilots and with the aim to set achievable tasks and have um, experienced pilots there coaching, shepherding, helping people onwards and a bit of post analysis as well to see who did what, who did well, who did badly and learn lessons. And it's a great way, a social event to uh, A, get some good flying, B, learn about cross-country flying because you learn quite quickly in competitions how to compete because you're watching 100 other pilots do the same thing in the same time and you can see what is achievable. It opens your mind. So it does help you with your cross-country flying, for sure. Uh, Top-level racing is uh, another matter. The problem with this gaggle thing is actually not a problem, in, in my opinion. Um, it's just the nature of the fact that back in the day, 20 years ago, when Rob, I always tease Robbie about this, when Rob became world champion in paragliding, Everyone else had a red ribbon and couldn't even take off. You know, there was there was only him and three others that knew how to even fly. So, whereas now we've got 50 pilots that are at the standard of Andre, you know, and are at the standard of Russell. And um, so when Andre does that breaking move, he's got 20 people with him now. Before he didn't, 
whereas now he does. And uh, if someone goes off in a slightly different direction, they have 30 people on him as well. The standard of pilot has gone up to the extent where the best pilots in the world are probably the same level as they were 20 years ago. They're not better. But the difference is, is that there's now 60, 70 pilots that can roll at that speed. And it's the fact that, you know, this, this standard has, has been upped and upped and upped. And the depth of the field is so big now that gaggles happen because everyone's got their eyes open. If they see Andre taking a move, someone's going to cover him if it's the right move. You know, if, if other people, if the collective brain thinks, yep, that's a good move, they're going as well. Okay, so those opportunities to break away become harder and harder and harder, and it only happens near the end. Or if you have a day that is, you know, shades over, or there's, there's a lucky, strong five-meter climb from behind or something, and a, and a gaggle can get a jump on others. Um, but otherwise, on a normal standards glide climb, glide climb, glide climb day, it does act as a gaggle. Um, but that's that's just because there's good pilots who know what they're doing, and information has gone out there. Everyone shares information. Everyone talks. You know, there's a very there's a very healthy kind of um, movement of information in the competition world, even at the top level, even amongst the top pilots. Everyone's talking, sharing, discussing, analysing, hopefully improving for the following day. And what that means is that we all tend to fly together. Uh, there's probably a handful of pilots, probably 20 pilots, Andre of which and Russell are certainly one of them, will be willing to stick their neck out, make moves. The, ma the majority of pilots are a little bit more tentative and, and tend to not stick their neck out. But it's still the beautiful game and it's still very enjoyable. I'm, I'm still thoroughly addicted to it, still thoroughly addicted to it and, and really enjoy it. So uh, my heroine uh, paragliding competitions and uh, in December we had our pre-PWC here in Portable. Even Stefan Druen was looking and going, wow, that, uh, that Enzo 3 with the new set of lines that Steph Juncker is flying, bloody be careful. And I'm also, we've never flown a competition together, but uh, uh, they, they were seeing, wow, one South African is above and ahead of everybody all the time. Unfortunately, 13 points behind uh, Pepe Maleki, who won the comp. And I had just finished one week of cross-country forward slash comp training, kind of a clinic that we were trying. We were trying a kind of fun competition, much like you guys with Shabri Open and with uh, Jun Wide Open which uh, was also at last um, August uh, in Macedonia with uh, Martin Jovanovski. And uh, yeah. what a pleasure. Really, really nice to see this. And I want to also echo what you've said a few minutes ago about the pilots today, you know, and I reiterate, we only get a kick in the ass. It's so nice for us afterwards to be able to openly discuss and say, shit, you did so well on that transition and really nice. And it's not just about, OK, we all go to our corners of the bar and sit and drink our drink quietly and ignore each other and go, screw you, I'm going to have you tomorrow. It's not like that at all. That camaraderie, that kind of uh, us looking after each other because we do a relatively risky sport. So, you know, when one guy crashes, you forget about the race your priorities to top land, buy that guy, check that he's okay, try and save his life. That's what paragliding is all about. That's the essence of the sport for me now. Um, I would like to maybe ask you to transmit the message to Ozone and maybe if anyone from Jin and the others are listening to this, let's try and get some comps in in August and September, even extending to October, maybe look at still having some kind of season. Obviously, uh, it's much more difficult with formal competitions like a PWC 
formats and so but uh, some fun competitions everybody still wants to comp compete this season i'm getting a lot of feedback from pilots saying i uh, desperately want to get in the air and compete so let's just do it you know let's just have one week after the next in europe and have a kind of traveling road show yeah i think there's i think there's a lot of people who are in the same boat who are itching to, to to get and fly um it looks like the british championships which is meant to be in grand in june is going to be cancelled but or postponed postponed the, the the we're staying optimistic and hopefully we can look for alternative venues to 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 move it back into like you say into september even october saint andre down here which is a very good area for for racing um can work really nicely in october late september so um i think everyone is keeping an open mind and keeping optimistic to try and host something this year but like you say, I think I think the World Cups are going to probably be be off. I say let's keep it tidy, let's hope for the best, and let's just keep yeah, enjoying. Yeah. And that's what it's about, you know. Yeah, yeah which is yeah. so nice. I mean, have you got something from your past you'd like to share? Some kind of uh, madness? Uh, maybe one last question I have for you is: You've said that you've had the fortune of traveling and paragliding really, really nicely around the world. Where are your top one or two or three or five or ten places? Maybe you want to just uh, rattle off a, a list or tell us. Right. Well, I'm going to give you three places. I'm going to give you three places uh, as my top three destinations for flying. First of all, everywhere has good flying. Uh, wherever you go, there's always going to be a good day and you can get some amazing flying. Some of my best flying, some of the most enjoyable flying I've ever had has been on Mud Island. Flying cross-country above the green and pleasant land is rare, but because of that rarity, it's also beautiful. So some of my most memorable, enjoyable flights, certainly not my longest ones, have been have been in the UK. But my three top, top destinations for paragliding, for mountain flying, for mountain racing, I'll say for mountain racing, I'm being specific here. So for doing competitive tasks in the mountains, without a shadow of a doubt, Saint-André-les-Alpes in the Alp Maritime down here. It's the foothill of the main Alps. What's nice about that is that all the mountains are at different slight angles. It's a beautiful arena, arena where you can have many different routes to, to get to the same spot. What I find is when you fly in the Northern Alps, all the valleys align. There's no route choices. You just fly along a valley, you cross a valley, you fly along a valley, you cross a valley, and then you come back and you land in a valley. It's, flying around Annecy, for example, is, is great, and I don't want to upset people who love Annecy because I know there's a lot out there, but I find it a bit kind of, a bit mundane, to be honest. It's a bit just sort of following a path. So I rate Saint-André, Les Alpes, as the best place to fly uh, in the mountains. For flatland flying, I think it would be hard to beat Chelan in north, uh, near Seattle in northeast uh, America. Um, it's a massive, huge, well, there's a big mountain. You cross over a very deep gorge before hitting the flatlands. And it's some of the most stunning uh, flatland flying you can have. The, the soil is very light, it's like talcum powder. So each thermal is marked by a kind of dust devil. They're not actually dusties. They're not dust devils, but they're, they're visible from the, the sky. Uh, and you can see where they've scarred through the landscape on the ground. Very high cloud bases, sort of 6,000, 7,000 meters, six, five, yeah, about, no, about 5,000 meters, 6,000 meters. Really exceptionally good flat land flying. Thoroughly enjoy Chelan. 
closer to home or closer to Europe. Um, I actually really rate, and I've only been there a few, a couple of times now, and only recently. But I actually really rate uh, Khrushchevo in Macedonia, that whole valley where you met Martin. Um, I think that is a really fantastic place to fly. It's it's a very um, it's a very safe, relatively safe uh, takeoff area. The arena is relatively safe. It's it's wooded mountains or wooded mountain range, but not exposed rock, not too steep, uh, not too turbulent. Good thermals out front, so you never have to be too close to to the terrain. Uh, and then a wonderful uh, large flatland valley which is working it's not just a valley system like you get in the mountains which don't work the the whole valley system works there's complex convergence there's the other side of the valley with the mountains there and there's some really epic flying to be had in that area so i i've 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 now upped i've now put macedonia Khrushchevo, macedonia on my list of favorite flying destinations oh wonderful Wonderful. I'm going to ask you just to think for a moment about your fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. Just mention names. You don't have to go into details. But I have to say, I also came second in that, in that region wide open in Khrushchevo last year. And I can completely, completely agree with you. Bloody brilliant place to fly. Really super, super cheap. The farmer in his tractor takes you back to the main road, all that kind of stuff. Ah, sensational. Really, really nice. Khrushchevo, I've been in Chelan. Uh, very, very nice flying. Unfortunately, I was there all alone, out of competition time. So I just made one flight, thermaled up, flew around a bit and top landed. <laughs> and yeah. um, of course, Saint Andre, who, who doesn't know it? So that means mm-hmm. no introduction. No. Carry on down your list quickly. Just blab off some names, eh? Where else is good? I mean, I've had good flying everywhere. Um, I, I really enjoyed... I, I, go, flying in America is always... Full on. It's the opposite of Macedonia. If you're if you're a low airtime pilot and you want to get some good cross country flying, I'd strongly recommend you go to Macedonia. Going to America would be you have to be on your ball to go to America. You should be experienced and know what you're doing, especially if you go inland. Uh, some of the most amazing flying I've had was in um, Sun Valley, Idaho. The the conditions there were just insane. The thermals were so strong. You had to fly with oxygen because we're getting up to 18,000 feet, 6,000 meters. The conditions were just incredible. You'd, you'd take these monster climbs that just go on forever, and then you leave them and you're in monster sink, and uh, you're, you're flying over the most remote mountains. There's an area called King Mountain, which is just like being on the moon. And um, you, you can't see roads. It, it's, it's barren. It's wild. It's, it's, it, it just... It really makes you realize how big that whole continent is. And I should imagine it's probably a bit like flying inland Africa. There must be some places in Africa, probably in the south. I don't know. I don't know Africa so well, but there must be a lot of untouched gems in the middle of a landmass, a huge landmass, which gives conditions. The Americans, I used to always tease the Americans saying, yeah, you know, they... Yeah, it's, yeah, they say it's strong, but when you actually go to America and you fly in the conditions that they fly in, it's like they they were underestimating it. I think they were downplaying it. It was it's a full on place to fly, and a lovely group of pilots, a good flying community to fly in. So, Sun Valley was 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 a really 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 exceptionally good place to fly. Um, Columbia. The Roldanillo Valley, the very famous Roldanillo Valley now, you know, the last decade it's become um, a mecca for flying and quite rightly so. It's a beautiful place to fly. Um, 
Very, very, very flyable. Very few days lost to bad weather. It happens every now and then, but it's very rare. And um, very pleasant flying. Again, it's a bit like Khrushchevo. You've got the mountain range either side of the large valley. The valley's working. It's always nice to fly in a place where the valley's working. I like that. It's nice to be have that mix between diving into mountains, flying flatlands, and being able to get to another mountain range. I mean, I personally, over the years, I've realised that I, I, I'm much... I enjoy flatland flying more than I enjoy mountain flying, um, simply because I'm less exposed to risk, I'm less exposed to danger, um, and it's a bit more random, it's a bit more interesting, because you don't know what's going to happen, you've got to duck and dive and and, and make decisions, and, and sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. Mountain flying, I find a bit more prescribed. You just follow the same route. You go to that spur, which is sitting in the wind and sitting in the sun, and you'll get a thermal. So it's a little bit more predictable. And so I like the unpredictability of, of flatland flying. So I'd like to, to do a bit more flatland flying in the world now. Look, search for good places to go flatland flying. You know, whether it's in Brazil for the long cross country or go try again in Texas. We did a, a, a few weeks, a few years ago down in South Texas, trying to do world record attempts down there. That was quite full on. So I'd like to do a little bit more flatland flying really. I love to hear how excited you get and how you're going off and like uh, I ask you for a couple of single names of places and you start going about flatland flying. Well, the, flying the, the, world, the, the world is our oyster and uh, or the, the world was our oyster. I don't know if it will be anymore <laughs> in the future, but um, yeah, there's lots of good flying to be had everywhere. But I think the most important thing right now is that we enjoy the flying that we have in our local area and we... Uh, we get used to that because I think this year we're just going to have to get used to that if we're lucky. Absolutely. And uh, again, just listening to you, I start making lots of notes about uh, flatland flying and how Russell Achterberg is talking about risk aversion. Uh, he, I didn't know, uh, is actually always uh, one step behind when it comes to the start of a comp because he's thinking he's got that string pulling him back. And I was discussing hypnosis and meditation with him and maybe seeing a hypnotherapist or a sports psychologist, because he just wants to take off and be away and be with a lot of ground and, sorry, a lot of sky around him and that kind of thing, you know. Um, uh, then I'm speaking to Neville Hewlett, who broke the 507-kilometer yeah. record the first time to crack 100 Ks, and he's telling me how there's places in South Africa with 700 kilometers. And then uh, you started to think, uh, making me think about a trip I did to Ethiopia with my partner, and uh, her and I traveled together, and I was very naughty going flying every day. And there's huge potential in places like that, in untapped places. So you're right that the world is our oyster. There's still so much out there. There's so much undiscovered. Yeah, yeah. No, we are blessed. We are blessed. It's been real, my brother. It's been really a pleasure. This is by far the longest podcast I've ever done. The previous longest was just under an hour. We are in an hour and 38 minutes of chatting oh. now. And it's been really, really cool. So thank you very heartily. And I want to... Uh, reiterate your your words when you said uh, for the help of humanity and I agree that even if just a speck of a tip and if just one pilot's uh, bone is saved from a break or one life is saved and if one smile goes on one pilot's face from these podcasts my job is done and I thank you very very much for participating any last words you want to say 
Oh, no, no, I've got no more words other than I feel, feel honoured that you've had me on there. And it's nice to be able to say hello to all my South African friends. Hello to you all. I uh, hope you all guys are okay and we'll, that we'll get through this. And hopefully we'll be able to see you in the, the sky soon. Cheers, buddy. Let's wrap it up on this note. Thanks, Steph.